Hello and welcome back to the Arnithology. If you've been paying attention, you know that we are about to kick off our Keanu Reeves season. Before we do that, obviously the world is falling apart in a new and uh, interesting and slightly terrifying way. And Alex and I had a little chat about it. So the next sort of 12 minutes are not going to be really heavy. Um, just a little word on coronavirus and how it's impacting on the film industry. So if you want to skip ahead, skip forward to about 13 minutes and the episode will start proper. Cheers. All week I've been persuading people. Some of them are like already fully on board. And some of them I've got to be like, no, like, go get stuff that, you know, don't just they've gone the other way they're like so like they're ready for the apocalypse i'm like well stay sane while while it's still vaguely okay you know there aren't riots in other places so don't expect it here you know? well i'm not sure i'm not sure i could make that equivalence actually with the state of britain but what i would say is that this current spree of purchasing is just not sustainable and yeah. if people have got it out of their system, you know, they've got all of the loo roll, they've got all of the beans now, just yeah. be sensible. Yeah. And I think be sensible and engage empathy. I think that's the biggest thing. The conversation I'm having with people is what this has shown up for me, if Brexit and a landslide for the austerity Tories wasn't proof enough, what this crisis is showing me is that the, the, the actual crisis in our society is an empathy crisis. Yeah, 100%. And I'm probably going to be fine. I do go to the shops. I make those trips at quiet times and try and, and make them as short as possible because even if I'm not displaying symptoms, I could still be a carrier and I've got to think about the most vulnerable person that I could come into contact with. And that, that's all it is. One of the knock-on effects that directly impacts you and I of this current uh, coronavirus lockdown yeah. is that the cinemas are closed. Yeah. And so um, I made the comparison to someone talking about that earlier on in the week. They said, you must be going nuts not being able to go to the cinema. And I said, well, for me, this is, this is genuine yeah. as well. And I've heard other people make this statement as well, which makes me feel not like a complete loser. The act of going to the cinema is, is very much an analogue for what, a lot of people get out of going to church or going to temple. Right. Um, and for the cinemas to be locked down is like telling Ned Flanders that he can't go to <laughs> yeah. church. Right. There are obviously, you know, uh, larger concerns. Many, many people in the film and TV industry are now unemployed, mm. um, some permanently, right. because the industry just can't afford to sustain them in a period where they're not working. Yeah. Production has shut down on, on TV yeah. and film across yeah. the world. So films that were already completed, like yeah. James Bond, Black Widow, um, Fast Furious yeah. 9, have been pushed back, some indefinitely, some with prospective Yeah, we don't know when dates. we're going to get cinema releases for them, right? Exactly. Yeah. And films that we we're anticipating for the following year, like Matrix 4, for instance, has now stopped shooting yeah. because they can't, they can't yeah. risk to carry on production. So yeah. there's going to be a big hole in next year's uh, release schedule yeah yeah and uh at, at the at the prop well, it's not actually the prospect it's already a reality the studio's losing money because they can't put films into theaters they're scrabbling to get some films not all films but some films that were slated for the spring and summer period released direct to video on demand right. for a 20 dollar rental fee 
Which should be 10, 15 pounds here, right? One of the first studios to announce was NBC Universal. So they've had um, The Invisible Man was quite a big hit recently. They're releasing that early to rent, which yeah. actually I'm really happy about because it already it, it had a very successful cinema run. Right. And I really liked it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again in the space of my own home. Right, yeah. But then you've also got a film like Vin Diesel's Bloodshot, which had mm. just come out and probably wasn't going to do very well. Yeah. Might now actually get a boost because it's a new release that's coming to the home market yeah, yeah, so yeah. quickly. Uh, Pixar have just announced that their recent release, Onward, right. uh, although that made a, a couple of hundred million dollars and then the cinema shut down, they stand to lose you know, anywhere between a quarter and a half a billion dollars on that movie, not being right, in cinemas. Yeah. So they're also releasing it to the home market now. Yeah, This is a good and a bad thing. Obviously, it's great for consumers because it cuts down on piracy. Yeah, yeah. They get to see the films that they want to see in the comfort of their own home. I think a lot of people will be willing to pay that $20. Someone made the, the point the other day. Yeah. If you're taking a family of three of to course. go and see Onward, that's yeah. $100. If yeah. you can do $20 and sit on your own sofa and take pee breaks yeah, and people you know, much or, rather, order yeah. pizza, yeah, that's a that's a really preferable option. And you know what will happen is a lot more people will... It's possible that this completely changes the industry's view of what how people watch, how likely they are to re-watch, all that kind of stuff. And you'll have people sharing it. You'll have people like saying, hey, come round, we're going to rent this. Of course. Pay us... You know, five dollars, whatever. First ten dollars, we'll we'll chip in together. Two families getting together, watching this. No, it'll right? be you rent the movie, I'll get the pizzas. You know, whatever that, that kind of stuff will keep happening, right? My hope actually was that well, maybe more people will watch movies this way, and maybe we'll get more releases straight to home, and maybe there'll be a boom in home cinema, and maybe it will end up being that they see that more people actually end up seeing the movie, more eyes are on the movie, more people end up renting and buying the movie later on so here's the issue for a small to mid-budget movie like it was right. man bloodshot yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ben affleck's got a movie coming out called the way yeah, back yeah. that's going to go direct to, to video on demand okay it's a good thing because exactly what you're saying like i was never going to go to the cinema to see that movie i was going to wait to rent it or even wait for it to come yeah, on netflix right. i can see it today yeah. great where I don't think it works, and I and I think the reason that we haven't had day and date release before now, because the technology is certainly there, is that the research does not pan out for a big budget movie that given the option of watching it at home and watching it in the cinema, you don't get the same revenue back at all. No, right. Like who if someone told you Endgame's gonna be out on, on rental the same day it's out in the cinema, like we're definitely going to the cinema, right? You and me would. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't. You think so? Um, and right. they wait. Families, it's difficult for families. Parents, yeah. let's say, with young kids, they can't take their kids to see yeah, the movie. Sure. They'd have to pay to see, to get a babysitter yeah. as well. It's a big pain in so the ass. So what are you saying? That those big budget movies won't recoup the revenue? Well, let me put it this way. Yeah. Black Widow is due to come out at the beginning right. of May. You're not going to get that on a on a direct-to-home release. You're not going to get James Bond on a direct-to-home release. Because those are movies that cost two, three hundred million dollars. So they're just when marketing, wait until cinemas are open again. They'll wait it out. It. Fast and Furious put back a whole year just to be safe, to get yeah. a prime spot in what's going to be an empty summer market next year, right? Because they're looking at we can make another billion dollars here. I would rather of wait. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think outside of a period of crisis where their yeah. hands are forced, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of distributors will be very, very wary 
about doing day and date release because it kills the cinema market and it's it's really not good for cinema chains who don't make a lot of money off of sure. the tickets anyway they make money off popcorn and coke but it's also not good this is the other thing that I'm considering is we just had a foreign language movie win the best picture oscar right, right. For parasite right it it has broken the record for a foreign language movie in uk cinemas and there was a real excitement actually for a lot of people who have only ever been able to go and see that movie in an arts cinema or an independent cinema which are normally only in big towns and cities you don't get them out in the country no right that this is a this is a foreign language prestige movie that we can see in a multiplex yeah. for weeks yeah yeah and maybe we'll get that swell again like we did in the early 2000s where you know lots of films from all over the country or, or sorry all over the world that are really entertaining but get classified as art because they're not in English we're suddenly going to get wide releases and it would be a real shame if the chances of seeing a film like Parasite in the cinema are cut because a distributor will look at it and go I can just release this straight to the home market yeah. so for for me who's a regular cinema patron I have concerns I think I'm probably just about on the minority because I think most people find going to the cinema not that enjoyable these days. Right. And so I want my film at home. Just give it to me at home. And I think, I think distributors, some distributors will bend. And I think it will be, I think overall it will be bad for the film industry. And that's, that's sort of my feeling about it. But possibly I imagine that there will still be a proportion of people that like to go to a venue see it on a big screen, you know, sit there with other people in a crowd. And the prime candidates for that, given the fewer tickets that will be sold, will be the smaller chains. Does that make sense? I, I They'd be able yeah, to I stay open. I don't think it's just a case of there being fewer cinemas. I think it's a case of there being less choice in the cinemas that we already have. Because it's already really bad. If you look at a Cineworld or an Odeon or a View, yeah. they all show the same five movies. Sure. multiple times on multiple screens they're all yeah. sequels they're you know pre-existing sure, sure. ips it's very difficult for original ip to get into yeah. a, a multiplex yeah. especially if it's in a foreign language and that's the stuff that i think is going to lose out of course I, I get your point i'm sorry for talking past it um i i was just picking up on the point that sort of was embedded in what you were saying about like the business will suffer um yeah ultimately the, the, i think it will yeah and at the same time, like so your your point's so valid. I remember, like again, when Avengers came out, the final one, I went to a, I think it was like a twelve screen multiplex. Every single screen yeah. was showing event, not, and not just except for one or two. Every single one, yeah, was showing Avengers, like at like a fifteen minute intervals, so that people could just arrive and go in to any any and that and screen. that is a part of the same problem because yeah. they're trying to maximize their profits. Yeah. That's a three-hour movie. Yeah, We've got to show this and nothing. There's no point yeah. showing the Shaun the Sheep movie or whatever came out against it because it's not going to get bums on seats. People want Endgame. Give them Endgame till they're sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but some people don't want Endgame. No, no, no. Right. <laughs> right. And those people are going to have to stay home. Yeah. I think there'll be some... I have a feeling there'll be some entrepreneurial advantages there always are when you get a lull in one market. People will do things like set up spontaneous cinemas. If it's over the summer, there'll be outdoor cinemas. There'll be, there'll be independent people trying to buy up 
the big movies, the independent movies, and sure. uh, those who have the cinema craving will be able to get it. Uh, yeah, I understand it. that, but I think the 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 painful bit for me is that it felt like the big Hollywood machine was looking at this parasite situation, going, you know, there is a market for original. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, and now that's shot, and now that's shot. You're saying, and yeah. and now it might be yeah. a case of distributors going, no, 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 no. That stuff yeah, yeah. goes to the home market. Yeah, yeah. Cinemas, we want more DC. And I, I think you're right. Of course, of course. Yeah, and that's that would be sad. But you know, nothing is uh, is black and white. There's goods and bads to be taken from this. Like I said, I think, I think a film like Ben Affleck's um, The Way Back, for instance, is a film I'm I'm moderately interested in. I like Ben Affleck as an actor. Apparently, he's very good in it. Quite happy paying my twenty bucks or whatever to, to rent that at home. I was never going to go to the cinema to see it. So. Making yeah. that available is a good thing. I, one company that is going to do very, very, very well out of this whole period. Yes. Netflix. Yeah. I imagine Netflix subscriptions have gone through the roof. Yes. And with Disney Plus launching in this country as well, yeah. I imagine they are also doing very well. Yes. I'm sure of it. I know Kung Fu. FBI. If the bus blows up, he wins. Whoa, 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 whoa. Excellent! Hello, and welcome back to the Arnithology Presents. I'm going to leave the title tantalizingly there for now. For I am Ben Hyten, and joining me as always is... Alex Belletti. It will come as no surprise to most people, I hope... We're kicking off season four. Can you believe it? God, it would be weird if it was a surprise. With like, people for whom this is a surprise don't get podcasts. Um, a lot of people just dip in and out to listen to episodes about the films that they like. So to, to, to be very clear, we have in the past done retrospectives of the works of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise. And we took a little break from that format. Yeah. We did a decade's worth of films that we considered forgotten, sometimes not forgotten, but we were looking for little gems in in the in the foraging of the cinematic undergrowth. Well, we used to call it the sofa crack of cinema. Of history, yeah. Cinema history. Um, um, what we didn't really find, like, I certainly never found a tenor down well, my sofa I, crack. I think we found a, a couple of really good films. I, I think At Close Range was really good. I think Eight Men Out was really good. Um Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is really good. It's funny you you mention that close range. Ben, do you understand what I'm saying of why I've got a close at close range well, vibe? Yes, because it, yeah. it's not the only time it's going to come up today. I, I yeah. certainly had thoughts about it over the course of watching the film that we're going to discuss in detail in a little bit. But what we're doing for season four is a retrospective of the career of Mr. Hopefully soon to be Sir... They'll have to change some laws. Keanu Reeves. He can get it. He can get it. I did a little bit Googling on Keanu Reeves. It's come no surprise to most people know anything at all about Keanu. The internet's full of love for Keanu. He's a very memed actor. It's in, sure. it's it's quite but it's quite insane how much like he's he's got a kind of godlike kindness that people attribute to him. Like he can do no wrong. Well, yes, and I think something that will come across uh, more, hopefully, as we get into the, the 90s and later, 
is that there was certainly a period of backlash against Keanu, uh, as we've seen with our other actors that we've done, where yeah. his talents were called into question. And and fair enough, he's a, he's an actor of limited range. Yeah. But he has turned that wheat into gold, and he is certainly, I think, now at the absolute peak of his career i agree in terms of the public love for him several of the um clickbaity headlines that i scanned across how keanu reeves took 30 years to become an overnight success things like that right and and yeah so fine they're nailing it in that sense of like that seems to be our our hot take anyway of his career is that like he, he was for so long um a joke actor right uh people would People wouldn't understand, like, well, how does this guy? He was again. He was criticised for acting, for his acting. Lack yeah, of I think a, a good-looking dude who got lucky. Yeah, and and he wouldn't say anything to the contrary himself. I, I think, like you said, like kept soaring. Another one of those headlines was, "How does a bad actor like Keanu Reeves so consistently make good films?" Or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is the question, Alex, that we will seek to answer over the next few weeks. Yeah. A couple of disclosures up front. What we have done in the past with Arnie and Tom Cruise is we've been fortunate enough to go right back to the beginning yeah, and and watch their entire career. Because of uh, the kinds of films that Keanu was in in the very, very beginning of his career. TV movies. TV movies, I'm happy to skip over anyway, really, because we have done in the past. We should, because our, our product is cinema history. But there are two, two films that we could have watched legitimately yeah. but we just haven't been able to source yeah they're, they're kind of impossible to get now one of them he was in a very very small part uh, and that was called young blood which is a rob Lowe uh, movie he is like 12th billing on it so i'm sure he had a very very small part in that there's another film that came out in 1986 called flying um it also has an alternate title of teenage dream that is unavailable in the UK. Now, I'll say this, if you're happy to go along with this, Alex, if one of our international listeners wants to provide us with a DVD of it that they've got in their collection, I'll happily do a bonus episode on it. But for the purposes of what shall be known as the Keanu Copia. Yes. Thanks to Richard Moore. Excellent title. It, it is. Really is. I was toying with Keanu Topia, and Keanu Copia is better. It is, it is, because... I, I, we're going to go through all the films and we'd just be constantly saying this is definitely not a Keanu Topia like exactly. if you were in some alternate realm where all you ha- all you could do is watch Keanu movies I don't think it would be a Utopia <laughs> certainly no. a Keanu a cornucopia it's a plethora of different genres yeah so for the purposes of the Keanu Copia we are starting in 1987 with a film called River's Edge uh, now this is something of a cult film the imdb synopsis has it as a high school slacker commits a shocking act and proceeds to let his friends in on the secret however the friend's reaction is almost as ambiguous and perplexing as the crime itself certainly is i totally get why this is a cult movie i did not i didn't realize that you've obviously read a bit more than i have but it's like that that makes sense that it's it's a cult movie the reason i say that is because it first came to my attention about three years ago when i was at a midnight 
uh, horror movie marathon. And the guy that was curating the evening gave away a copy of River's Edge. And he said, if anyone's never seen it, it's really worth seeking out. It's a surprisingly good little movie that no one's seen. So I had it in the back of my mind. I'd never seen it. That was certainly the first I'd ever heard of it. But one of the reasons that it has a cult following is it was uh, a lead vehicle for Crispin Glover. The once yeah. and future George McFly. Uh, God, I can't wait to talk about him. <laughs> and and also features uh, Dennis Hopper just at the point that his career was coming back because this is a year after Blue Velvet, right? Uh, and his career had been in doldrums at that point. So I think what's first of all before we get into the film, what's interesting about it is actually the most famous sort of bankable person in the film when it came out was actually Crispin Glover because he was coming off of Back to the Future. He'd done a Friday the Thirteenth movie. He was seen as you know, a really exciting, strange young actor. That's so weird. Um, and this was certainly the biggest part that Keanu Reeves has had at this point. I've got a nice quote from the casting agent about him that I'll, I'll share with you in a minute. And, and then there's the Dennis Hopper sort of surprise thing on top of it because Blue Velvet had just come out and that gave this film a little bit of extra cachet. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming you'd never seen River's Edge before. Nope. What did you think of it? Uh, well, before I guess before I even say that, this is this is quite a difficult film to describe what happens in it. I don't think it's a film with a, a, a plot necessarily. It That's has right. an inciting incident and then things unravel from there. So what yeah. what basically happens is we are introduced to two of the main characters basically looking at the dead body of a young beautiful blonde girl on the bank of a river and the older of these two characters. And she's um, naked as well. That's called, the thing, Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, who they all call John, but his his name is Samson, goes to school where his stoner mates, Crispin Glover and Keanu Reeves and Ioni Sky hang out and straight up tells them, I, I killed her. I killed yeah. Jamie. We don't know their affiliation. We don't know why. We don't know. No, we get the sense that they're, they're kind of a, a bunch of misfit friends. Yeah. They're all def- stoners. Definitely. Yeah. From that starting off point, I think you just get these little insights into the characters in how they react to that news. And that's really the the majority of the film. That's the movie. This is a really good character study movie. You asked me what I thought about the movie. I didn't love it, but I definitely didn't hate it either. Okay, good. It's really fascinating for me, this film. It's one of those movies that has a lot of potential and also has a lot of charm. And that could just be because I'm... I've got that kind of 80s veneer over it. This is charming because it's in the 80s. But had I seen it in the 80s, I'm not sure if I'd have enjoyed it at all. But I would have been six or seven when it came out. Well, can I just say a couple of things about that? I, I think there are definitely three films that I want to reference yeah. as they come up. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, to an extent, this is the kind of film that could only have been made in the 80s as part of the slew of teen slacker movies i agree but at the same time i think it probably had more impact when it came out because it was so different to most of those other films this is not a john hughes movie exactly it's got all the elements of a john's i'm so happy you said that it's got the elements of a john hughes movie but there's it's like it's taking it's like taking john hughes movie characters and putting them in a world where it's in the real world and they're trying desperately to be like the teens that they must, if, if if this was a documentary, you'd see these teens trying to be like the teens in John Hughes movies, which were like icons for teenagers at that time. Aspirational characters. Yeah, yeah. aspirational. 
Not a single character in here is aspirational, except for maybe Keanu's character. Well, I'd say Ioni Sky as well, actually, to an extent. She's this. She's the sweet, beautiful. I think Ioni Sky is relatable. Okay. She's an ordinary girl who just kind of is caught out by this quite atrocious situation. They're all kind of mentally unwell. <laughs> or yeah. what I would say is they're all teenagers. And no one around them understands them at all. Like you get like this kind of interrogation with the police and you get the parents not understanding them. And it's it actually takes you into a teenage world. And it's like, you want to know why teenagers are so confusing? Their brains aren't right. Like they, they switch, they change from an innocent child to pubescent delinquents. And even like Keanu's character, Matt, says to his little brother at the time, why are you such a delinquent? Right. And his little brother's 12. And he's trying to find himself. In it. He's looking up to his big brother and the kind of friends yeah, he, he wants. To, yeah. When we first see him, he's yeah. stealing beer for a kid who's refused buying it and uses that to trade off on getting right. him to get him some weed. He right. wants to be the older teenager. And right. as someone who had a, a brother seven years older than me, I I mean, not to that extent, but I fully relate to <laughs> yeah, yeah. just treat me like you treat your friends. Please just treat me as one of your own. Yeah, you totally Which, of course, is ludicrous to someone who's 17 or 18 years old that they're going to hang out with a 12 year old no yeah and and it's that it what it does really well and you said it i mean i think you said it when you read the thing that ambiguous reactions to to this news to the death of somebody they knew and it's like there's let, let things i'll say later on about what it's trying to say about death i think the film is trying to say a very clear message about how people generally deal with death how society views death, how society views violence. This is a film about teenagers trying to reconcile those realities. And that's why I say it's really, it's really excellent you mentioned John Hughes movies because I was trying to, I was grappling for that metaphor. I couldn't, couldn't quite put my finger on what, what does this film remind me of? And it reminds me of John Hughes movies, but placed in a much more real and raw world that's dealing with existential questions in that kind of non-twee way i think if you compare the the main group of teenagers in this to the main group of teenagers in something like the breakfast club yeah i'm wondering if you the big difference is um because what's great about those john hughes movies is that they so rarely actually live in a world of adults it's a teenage world and the adults are either there to improve or block the aspirations of those characters right i think the the treatment of adults in this film is one of the most interesting things about it, depending about on enemy. which character. Well, depending on which character you're following, but the difference between these characters and the John Hughes characters is they've had that safety net of the the middle class suburbia removed from them. This That's is right. a very downtrodden. That's right. Um, area of the world. It's quite a grimy film in a way. It's not. Yeah. The locations are not pleasant to no, be no. in. Yeah. Uh, there's no cool, like, no. don't you forget about me It's it so right? light on the music. Yeah. Did you notice yeah. that? Was... Yeah, and it, and it's diegetic most of the time, isn't yeah. it? It's, when we hear music, it's in someone's car. Yeah. It's not soundtrack, I mean. Right. Except uh, in the beginning and credits. Yeah, yeah. I didn't notice any other music. No. But the thing about the adults, I think, is, is, is fascinating because Ioni Sky's character, for instance, the only adults we ever see her interact with are her mother who we never see she just says is that you yeah and she says yeah and she just goes about her business takes stuff in and out of the house and the teacher that she is kind of in love with 
in a sort of Indiana Jonesy kind of way. It is Indiana Jones. It is like Indiana yeah, Jones. Yeah, it is. You, totally. But the thing is about that teacher as well, and this is the thing I do like about this movie. Everyone's flawed. No one's a hero. True. And even Keanu, we might think he's he's a hero character, and that could just be because we're watching Keanu in, in hindsight. But it's like, he doesn't know what to do. And and the thing about hero, our heroes in many movies is that they, they kind of know what to do, even when they don't. Even when there's a crisis, you like, they're going to do something. I genuinely did not know what was going to happen at all in this movie. No. And I think that's the most shocking thing about it in the first half is how can they be so blasé about the fact that one of their friends is dead? They go back to the that's site the of, yeah. they go back to the site of her body on the river three times before anyone even thinks to do anything about it. It's so that's, weird. That's the really shocking thing. Yeah. And a part of me was going, well, this is just really bad writing. This isn't believable at all. Right. But actually, as the film goes on a little bit more and you, you understand a little bit more about the mindset of each of these kids. Yeah. Perhaps with the exception of Chris Glover. Yeah. Who's un- he's completely impenetrable. It's almost, I would almost like to go back and maybe not watch the film again, but watch those early scenes again, now knowing where those characters end up. Right, because I, I had the exact same thought. Like, first I was like, this is outrageous. Yeah. It's it's totally outrageous. The opening scene is of a 12-year-old boy. In a way, there's a reading of the film where he's the main character because he's kind of straddling that world because we're talking about John Hughes, which kind of has that kind of protective layer of stuff. And childhood has a protective layer around it as well. And adolescence is just like, nope, you're kind of old enough to know about this stuff, even if you're not. It becomes more difficult as you as you enter adolescence to try and guard yourself or safeguard yourself from the realities of the world. It's much easier to do as a child. Sex and death and love and relationships and responsibility. That can be so overwhelming for anyone, even an adult, that is trying to escape those things. That you, you literally don't know what you're supposed to do, even in a situation as extreme as this, where it's like, someone we know just killed somebody. Your immediate reaction you'd assume would be, I'm going straight to the police. I'm running away from this situation. I'm going to the police. You're right. None of them have that reaction. And it's a bit incredible at the beginning. Like you said, it's bad writing. But I quickly got on board with the idea of like, actually, it's really good writing. Like we're in an age now where we know that this is how teenagers respond. There's that story of like teenagers literally filming a guy drowning. Sure. Last yeah. year sometime or two years ago? Because this is in the pre-cell phone days, I suppose you come in it, I do anyway, come at it now as a film that's more than 30 years old and think, well, surely it was a more innocent time. Surely we were better then. And and I can, all I can really do is apply my own experiences of, of the you know that period. Yeah. It's really difficult to say because we were little delinquents in a way. We would go and steal things and, we and hide them in the... In, yeah, and what I think is really fascinating about the, you know, Keanu Reeves as hero character, he is the one that eventually does the right thing. He does the one thing that's right. He calls the cops and he is treated by that authority figure immediately as a suspect, as yeah. complicit. And he even says it in a really overblown way, man. Yeah. But I think what's fascinating about his dynamic, his home dynamic, is mum is clearly working long hours to try and put some money on the table. Yeah. She's married a guy who is putting money on the table. It reminded me of the stepdad in At Close Range. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But what's really interesting, when we first see uh, Joshua John Miller's character, that's the, the young boy, Tim, Yeah, he's dropping a doll off of the bridge. 
yeah. just before he discovers Samson has killed this other woman. Yeah, and there's that sign on the bridge that says, warning, jumping off bridges is illegal. But Keanu Reeves recognises that Tim is a little punk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what he's done is completely unjustified in hurting his little sister by getting rid of her favourite dolly. But maybe that's how Keanu treated him when he was a kid and he and Keanu was 12. Well, maybe, but I think what's fascinating is the juxtaposition of the knowledge that one of his friend's body is lying on the bank of a river, and I'm not doing anything about it, but still having enough empathy to take the time to have a burial ceremony with the little girl. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. For her dolly. It's certainly relevant, and that's why the film... I don't think it's too heavy-handed in it. It's just it's introduced these elements around death. That's like, despite all of the teenage stuff that we're talking about and the fascinating way in which they're dealing with it, it's like it actually teaches everybody something about death. And the adults all reacting as though these kids should be behaving in one way or another way. But then the teacher, the teacher character, he's he's all messed up around it as well. I got the feeling from him that he just really wants them to think he's cool, man. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, that's kind of it, right? But he fucking, he loses it. I think he's trying to hold it together and trying to teach the kids some kind of a lesson, but he loses it in the process of doing that. He has a go at the kids in a way that's like, yeah, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? But it's like, his morals are all over the place. Oh, it's totally inappropriate the way he reacts towards the end of the film. Not just that. He's preaching a message quite clearly. That, that given certain wrongs, it's appropriate to use violence, right? And these these two kids, they're like the just polar opposites. The jock and the nerd. <laughs> the jock, one's, one's a jock and one's a super nerd. And the guy's like, isn't violence wrong? And the jock says, Sorry, screw you, man. Like It's far out to hit a pig or something That's like it, that. it's far out to, to kill cops, I think he said, or something like that. But the but the teacher even uses but the teacher but then the teacher the comes away pig. from both of them and goes you don't you totally miss my point yeah to both his, of them. I understand but yeah. his language that he refers to the cop as a pig the teacher does yeah right before that moment right so he's sending out these really confusing messages okay so to the them. next time we see that's why it's, this is what I'm trying to say yeah. so confusing the next time we see that teacher he's outraged that these kids aren't upset. By the death of somebody, having just taught them that it's okay to kill cops. Yeah. The film is quite, quite subtly trying to say, if these kids are this way, they're they're able to have ambivalence about death, and they're confused by their own ambivalence about death. Some of them actually say explicitly, we should be, why aren't we sad about this? Why hasn't this hit us? And Keanu's like, oh, it probably hit us at the funeral or something. If these kids are ambivalent about these kinds of things, it's because society's ambivalent about these kinds of things. Society's got this problem with death and dying. What, how you're supposed to react and how you actually feel. And th- th- if, if I take one message from the film that's beyond the very interesting character dynamics, it's that caring for people is what makes death hard. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. And you just feel this kind of guilt that you don't feel very much when someone dies. If, if the, the message is no matter how bad someone is, if you cared for them, their death then has meaning to you. Which is interesting when it comes to the end, because Crispin Glover throughout has tried to defend Samson, the guy who killed the girl. Spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen River's Edge, I'm about to spoil the third act a little bit. Dennis Hopper, who's the local drug dealer and psycho, who is quite openly confessional about how he killed a girl once, 
sees that Samson is off the rails, is far worse than he is, is, is potentially a real psychopath. Yeah, he does. And, and kills him. And so Samson's body is taken away. Because he confessed that he enjoyed killing, really. Right, he's, yeah, he's a genuine yeah. Yeah, psychopath. But I think what's, what's interesting about that is, is that gives a closure on the death of Jamie to an extent. The authorities have, have got it all in hand now. And there's a kind of montage towards the end of all of the characters going into the church for a funeral. And I expected it to be Samson's. So did I. Then I tweaked and I was like, so they're all walking up to the casket and like paying their respects and then walking away. That's the shot. And you don't see the body. I thought, yeah, it's pro- it could be Samson's. And then I realized like it isn't because no one's emotional. Well, but th- see, that's a really interesting thing that I was going to get onto is throughout the film, we've had all of these characters uh, saying things about Samson and how wrong he was to have done what he was and whether we should stick by him, whether we should grass him up all and all that. He's killed, and obviously that's an extra level of turmoil, like, well, maybe he shouldn't have died and all of that. One of the things that's really lacking throughout the film is anything about Jamie. We don't know anything about her. That's deliberate. Other than... That's deliberate. I know, I know. It's deliberate. But that's what I'm saying is, in a sense, we as the audience should, on some level, have more empathy for Samson because we have more understanding of who he is. Yeah, I know. We are supposed to. Did you? No. And that's fascinating, isn't I it? I didn't either. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. all we know about this girl is she was young, she was beautiful, yeah. and she was killed. Are, are we supposed to have... Are we really supposed to have more empathy for, th- for him? Well, I'm not saying that, that we're supposed to. Right. I'm saying, given we know more about him, shouldn't it be natural that we at least empathize with him more than someone who is essentially a cardboard cutout? Just a figure on a shore. Yeah, and maybe that's who she was to them. And I think that's part of it as well, because that's why they don't really react. Think back to your friendship groups at school. I never I never had friendship groups. You didn't have any friendship groups. I read, there's always like someone who you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. They were there. You knew them. You'd have conversations with them. Yeah. So let's, let's say that guy or that girl. Yeah. Let's say that you're in your early 20s and you find out that guy or that girl that you went to school with was killed. Yeah. What do you think the public outpouring... Would be. I'm like, oh my god, that's so unfair. They were such a nice person. How could this happen? Knowing nothing about that person, knowing nothing about their family life, nothing about anything they ever did in their yeah. life. It's the default reaction. And I think because we know nothing about Jamie, she's pure, she's innocent. It's unfair, yeah. right? I am no, I'm in no way saying Samson was justified in killing her. He is a psychopath. No, no, no. Yeah, I didn't get that from what you're saying. No, no. All, all, all I'm trying to highlight is there is something in the treatment of all of these little things, the absence of, of authority figures, yeah. the absence of parent figures, the absence of, of information right. that is crucial to the telling of this story. Yeah. And that is something that's very, very restrained from a writer's point of view, is to say, take that stuff out and that it, tells us more. It, it, it really helps with the, the, the sense I had. It wasn't a sense of foreboding. I think the writer got the mix just right it ended up creating the sense of i don't know what's going to happen now and i don't fully understand these characters motives but i got some impressions of how they're going to act which then didn't leave me so lost that i didn't care at all about what was going to happen which that also happens sometimes that i think there's some scripts that are trying to do that kind of be very lean in that sense of character it got the mix right i'll say that and in the final act 
just about managed to avoid becoming full-blown melodrama as well because I thought right. when Tim turned up with the gun... Totally. Yeah, totally. I was like, oh man, this is the way this movie's going. This fucking sucks. He and was really adamant that he was going to kill him. And, and that kid is a bad kid. He steals cars. Oh my God. <laughs> All sorts. He's convinced. That kid is convinced that this is the right thing to do now. My brother rung me. I have to kill him. And he's a narc. That's the main thing. Is like, was he says you finked on Samson? Yeah, yeah. He because he ratted him out. But but the the way that Keanu talks him down is, I'm your brother. Yeah, that's it. That's all he has to say a few times. He's not been much of a brother though, has he? Let's face yeah, it. No, not really. But he didn't even say I love you or anything like that. That's fine. Whatever. He can say it in a way that communicates that he cares. I just didn't buy the the chemistry of that scene. I didn't buy that Keanu was could convince this kid like not to kill him having how adamant this kid was that you're supposed to think you're supposed to totally believe that this kid's going to go and kill him and yeah it would become melodramatic yeah it would have been too much for me i would have been like fucking hell yeah yeah it was the right move to not go that way the relationship between tim matt is like well because they do actually care in their family there's not going to be a murder here when you don't care about somebody's a murder now there's the dennis hopper character that comes in and says no i kill people because i care about them and he's He keeps putting across the argument that I don't believe killing is right, but sometimes it's right to kill. The reason why is because he is un- really unwell. He's mentally unwell. And they really, they allude to it ever so slightly. They don't actually, they're barely heavy handed with it. I had to pick it out. I think that character killed his partner or somebody he was in love with, this guy he was in love with, because she was growing older. And he says a line like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to grow older. And so he kills her because she was growing older. That's why his love, his relationship now is with the sex doll. And then I'm not so sure that the reading of the movie is supposed to be, wow, Samson's dangerous. I better kill him. It's he's growing up. And we actually say see that he's a good kid. Like he's looking after his grandma. His mother died. We can tell he's not well. He's not a terrible kid, but I think that Dennis Hopper's motive for killing him is because he sees he's turning into something bad, not that it's right to kill him. I, I, do you see what I mean? It's difficult because, I mean, that's that's literally the, the words that he says, isn't it? And whether that is just pretty much, but I uh, wonder how much of that is, is to go towards a, a plea, you know, of like self-defense or something like that. Yeah. And did you... And maybe I looked away at the moment, but he was in the hospital with a bandage on his head. Yeah. Because um, Tim, the little kid, like fucking... Nunchucks. Well, his his friends smashed him yeah. on the head with nunchucks. Wait, the first time he whipped out those nunchucks yeah. when they were shooting the crawfish with the BB gun. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. That's crazy. <laughs> like, he's got a crazy friend as well, you know? Like, yeah. And so they, they're just there to steal his gun so that they can go and kill his brother. So that's why he's in hospital, because he's got he's been knocked out, basically, by a blow to the head. And he's talking to someone there. We don't see who he's talking to. I don't think he's talking to anyone at all. I think he's imagining the press or something. Yeah, but you, yeah, it could be a journalist. It yeah. could be a cop. It could be one of the kids. It could be his blow-up doll. It could be the nurse. Yeah. It could be anyone. And I think that's great. That was great. That it didn't cut to Again, anything. The absence of detail yeah. is yeah. so much more interesting than filling in all of those blanks. So before we get on to Keanu. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Crispin Glover. Please, please. He is so wild in this it's film. Crazy. I couldn't work out, is he really bad? Or is he doing something brilliant that I can't, can't, can't quite get? That is the question that has <laughs> bugged people throughout Crispin Glover's career. Right. He he clearly, like, 
he has something, man. He's got a magnetism and a crazy <laughs> that is is so. I find it incredibly watchable in the same way that a, you know a, a crazy Nick Cage performance is. It works perfectly in Back to the Future. It does. But it also goes some way to explaining why he wasn't in the sequels. And even the producers on this said, you know, he came in and he did his thing and we were really worried. Like, is he going to derail this entire film? But we made the decision to, like, let this kid go and see what he does. And I think what you get is actually, with the exception of Back to the Future, in every film that you see Crispin Glover in, certainly around this time, but even later on into his career, like Charlie's Angels, he always feels like no matter what film he is appearing in, he is starring in a completely separate Crispin Glover movie. Yeah, it seems like that. He doesn't fit in with the mood and the tone of this film at all. He's he's starring in a wild Jim Carrey-esque comedy, almost. Almost. Like, Clarissa says something that was like, he tells us what to do, like he thinks he's in charge of all of us or something like that. And the other one says something like, yeah, but we do go along with it. They're incredulous of like why they go along with this character's shenanigans. It's like that mix between they're teenagers and it's fun. They're playing pirates. It's like they're running around the woods playing pirates or something. But then it gets real and Crispin Glover's still playing. Everything about him, like his voice, which is, you know, really hyperextended and his every single movement yeah. is so exaggerated. <laughs> It's it's really crazy. Like and when he runs into Fex, he just runs and hits himself up against the wall. But even Keanu Reeves is challenging about something at the end, and he just goes, in my mind, and points <laughs> to his temple. Like, it it's so unnecessary. It's so at odds with with everything else that's going on. Yeah, yeah. But I, I genuinely, it is the one thing I would say, if there's nothing else about this film that appeals <laughs> to you, Watch it for Crispin Glover. <laughs> it's it worth it. It is worth it. I agree. L- love his performance or hate his performance, you should watch it. Not even the film. Yeah. It's so weird. I'll have to say, though, in the final analysis, I don't think he nailed the character. At one point, I thought he was badly cast. I thought he should be Samson and that Samson should be the Crispin Glover character. That And Samson is the role that he auditioned for. But why do you think Ro- do you think it was a good casting choice then? Well, I think by casting Daniel Roebuck, what you give Samson is more of a kind of Lenny from Of Mice and Men kind of feel. He's yeah, more that's, of a lumbering. Yeah, definitely going for that. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that was a, a good piece of casting, actually. And he doesn't have that many lines. He, it all has to come through his physical presence. So I think Crispin Glover is a kind of electric energy. You know, he's got this kind of karate movement all the way through the film, which would feel dangerous, but it's almost too obvious if he was Samson, because if a girl was found dead on the the river's edge, you would go, yeah, we're going to go and check out this crazy fucking kid who uh, runs around smashing into things. Like, it's definitely this guy. Whereas with Daniel Roebuck, he is almost invisible, isn't he? That's that's really interesting. It's almost like he wanted to be seen because... Straight away after he's killed this girl, he sat there on the bank and he's more interested in his echo, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's shouting there on the riverbank and it's like... Yeah, but it's a really primal scream as well. I thought that was a really enigmatic moment. I I understand, obviously, in the later scene, he is playing with his echo, but there was almost something of a sort of Native American chant to what he's doing at the beginning, or a wolf's howl at the beginning of the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we learned later on, he was completely pumped. He was charged up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was exhilarated in a way and he came alive in a way that he'd never had done before. And yeah, he was going to become a serial killer for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like he was saying like, 
I've never felt like that before. And now I'm dead again. Why wouldn't he keep on killing? Like, it's, there's nothing in there that suggests that. And that, that's, why, that's why I think, I personally think, that's why Dennis Hopper put an end to him. Was because, right, we have this yeah, one As insane thing in as Dennis Hopper is. Yeah, we've got this thing in common. But man, I'm not like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ending you, yeah. Yeah. He's not well, Dennis Hopper. None of them are. No, yeah, none of them are. Except for maybe Clarissa and maybe Keanu too. Well, Keanu's got his own problem. I mean, he really beats his little brother up. He beats him hard, man. Yeah, it's but it's it's actually, it's because he can't, like, we've got no idea where his dad is, where his real dad is. That his mother is sleeping with somebody who was also beaten up by his dad. So he's violent. We yeah. don't know how long for, actually, as well. He could have been in that house since Keanu was a kid. Keanu's angry and he can't really beat up this guy because he still feels like a kid. He should beat up that guy. That's who he's angry at. But also, what his little brother did to his little sister? Yeah, he's a he's a fucking little punk. That's, <laughs> that's the that's the least of it, you know. Literally going around town stealing. He steals a car, man. He steals a car and joyrides as a twelve-year-old. <laughs> two little kids driving in the car. That was funny. I actually laughed out loud. Okay, Crispin Glover's insane, but good or bad performance? <sighs> It's hard, right? It's a Crispin Glover performance. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I I really enjoyed it. Um, It is is wildly incongruous with the rest of the film. I agree. But actually, um, the film at times, for me, was threatening to become predictable and slightly dull. And having Crispin Glover just flying around all over the place kept my attention. And And I think actually, although I'm like you, I didn't hate the film at all. And I certainly didn't love it. No. Um, I did find the the third act pretty predictable. Although I'm glad that Tim didn't kill Keanu Reeves. So, so what of Keanu Reeves? This is yeah. certainly his biggest role to date. This is this is his, to an extent his breakthrough role. Yeah, um, certainly caught a lot of people's attention. And the films that he gets over the next two years, like Dangerous Liaisons and Bill and Ted, come directly from this. Something I can't understand is I I don't think this film has a main character. But I think it must be a bias of the fact that we're doing this, that I was sat there thinking Keanu's the main character. It's difficult because... He certainly doesn't have any more screen time than the other principal characters. No, he doesn't. And I, I, I kind of would have liked if Tim had been the main character because he's the first thing we see. Yeah. Um, and he's the youngest and it would have been interesting to see the film through his eyes. I kind of think it's really Ioni Sky because she is the, the moral compass of the film, at least. It's hard to make a case for that, though, because she has such little screen time. I, I think she's got as much as Keanu has. I'll say, I think he does just fine. But there's clearly, like you asked me, we've got to start collecting Keanu staples, right? Yeah. I'll be honest, I did another bit of internet trawling and I couldn't find anyone else who's said that, things that Keanu always does in his films. I think Keanu has a couple uh, that don't necessarily appear in this film. I've only got two. Okay, go on. An emotionless reaction shot. So it cuts to him, and there's literally nothing to cut to. It could be a still. So an inappropriately emotionless reaction shot is what C- correct. you're saying. Correct. Not, not, not because he's meant... Unless the reaction shot does call for deadpan, which is like yeah, yeah. rare, but it does happen. But that would be a fluke. And the other one is, whoa. Sure. Whoa is, is his... Um... I think it's his I'll be back. Yeah. I, I, would, I would go uh, also luscious hair. He's always got great hair. That's true great hair not always but certainly in a lot of films he does also not appropriate for this film but 
Keanu is also a man who loves to do his own stunts. He, so I've got to throw that in there. He's a staple doing his own stunts, for sure. And one that occurred to me watching this film, and I think I'm going to have the same problem with you here that I had with trying to get getting some onto the Tom Cruise list. All right. Now, Keanu Reeves does ha- occasionally have sex scenes in his films. What I've noticed about Keanu Reeves is they're so often tinged with a sense of guilt during the act. Definitely, that is appropriate for this film. I know it's appropriate for this film, yeah, because he's recalling Jamie as he's having yeah, sex yeah. with Ioni Sky. But I'm putting a pin in it because I think you're going to notice that happens more often than not in Keanu Reeves' sex scenes. So why are you putting a pin in it? I'm not against it. Fine. Right. So instead of saying getting some, I'm going to say guilting some. Guilting some. Well done. <laughs> Definitely guilting some. <laughs> As far we will find more staples as we, we will. go through, I'm sure. But we those will. are five good ones to start with. Always managing to sound like a surf bum, even when he's an alien. Well, okay. I can't shorten that title. Surf bums a bit much. Surfer bro. Surfer bro. Sorry. Yeah. Whatever. That's what I would say about his performance in this film. Is like, oh wow, Keanu is playing a stoner hunk, broody bro. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what a stretch. A broody. Stoner hunk bro, I think's better. Well, so that's a staple. But what I'd say about his performance in this is he is he's fine. I think the couple of dramatic moments that he has are not refined. They're a little bit drama school. Well, I mean, that's a criticism I would level against a lot of the film. Actually, Most of the is. cast, even Dennis Hopper at times. It's not. Yeah, it's not very tightly edited. The cinematography is is not really constructed in a way to to highlight the dramatic potential of every scene. It does feel like. They've blocked out a stage play and pointed a couple of cameras at it. What I will say about Keanu, though, and why I could see why a casting agent or a producer or director would look at this and go, I want that kid, Mm. is two things. First of all, he is goddamn beautiful. (laughs) I mean, he really is, isn't he? That's a big reason why kept getting cast yeah and i think that's a big part of why he was seen as as very lucky to get the roles that he did you know in in the coming few years because he's just a pretty boy but to his defense what i'll say i think does come through in this is a couple of moments there is something about keanu reeves where you do get the sense regardless of how dumb his character may be coming across that he's very soulful there is something very deep in his eyes and, and, and that comes through at a couple of moments in this. As I was thinking that, as I was watching the film, all I could hear in my own head was Joey Pants in The Matrix saying, look into those eyes, those big, pretty eyes. <laughs> look into his eyes, those big, pretty eyes. Which kind of ruined the moment for me. But that sort of soulfulness, I think, yeah. is something that he traded on a lot more uh, later on in his career. And so... The parts become more philosophical as a result. Right. He certainly was at a stage, he got to a stage in his career earlier than most people might realize where he's choosing the roles. You can see that because I think he's been candid. I don't know if he feels this way now, but there was a period of time where he's like, this is my hobby. My band is what I really want to do rather than the other way around. Sure. When you know that about him or when you look at his performances in that light, puts his acting in perspective. It's like, well, okay, why, why does he have to take this seriously? It is just films. I think that lets him off the hook in a way that I don't want to because yeah. because I think certainly 10 years on from the period that we're looking at now, yeah. I'm going to be making the argument that Keanu doing less is the best thing for a film. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's not a bad acting choice. 
And it's certainly something that we came across with Tom Cruise is that he was wild in those early films, like The Outsiders and Taps, and he needed to learn restraint. He he did. The same kind of goes for Keanu. He's got those kind of awkward shoulder movements that he does and the sulky, floppy hair. And he really needs to to rein that in and become more steady. And he does. And it's fucking great when he does it. And that's why I think the failing of this, I don't know who directed it, is in the direction. I agree. One of the interesting... So I went and looked up Tim Hunter. He's never really done any films that were uh, worthy of note after this. Right. He's done a lot of TV work. He's still working in TV. He does things like Gotham. Fun. But what I found really interesting was, as I was watching the film, I was reminded of Twin Peaks, which is another series that's focused around... You know, the inciting incident is the death is. of a local beautiful blonde girl. It is, it's weird. And I was st- struck by the, the Laura Palmer inciting incident of this That's film. That's interesting. And how similar it is. I can't believe I didn't think of that, yeah. And I, and I wondered, maybe did David Lynch see this and think there's something in this, this small town centred around the death of a girl? Was this part of the birth of Twin Peaks? I couldn't find anything. But I do not think it's a coincidence that Tim Hunter directed three episodes of the original Twin Peaks. Right. Clearly, David Lynch saw something in him and That's said... That's some good detective work, man. I think you can bring some something to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, you know, you've got to work with what you get. I don't think it would have been easy to wrangle those teenagers. But this is a very low-budget film as well. Don't forget, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. an independent movie. Quite surprising how successful it was, actually. It went to... I can't remember if it was Toronto or Telluride. And they said there was a split after the screening of... Many distributors just didn't even want to make eye contact with us. They didn't understand why we'd approach this material in this way. So it was quite a tough sell. Really? That is a weird thing. You said they wouldn't even look at them. You could argue, I mean, I don't really carry the way. I think it says something about the Samson character that he takes her clothes off after he's killed her, which you don't learn about until later. And there's all these assumptions about why and how he killed her. And we do find out. I don't think he raped her. And they ve- it's fascinating how the girls so very callously refer to that. Like, he probably raped her as yeah. well. And then they said something about going and confronting him. Like, no, he's just going to try and take you in the woods and rape you or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But so offhandedly. Like, yeah, of course is. that guy's a rapist. Look at him. No, I've, met a few, I've met a few women who talk like that. Who just yeah. like, It's a way of dealing with the, the horror of it. It's, it's, it's fucking horrible. And it's shocking. It's like, but I think that's part. I think the only reason stylistically to make her naked is for the shock value. It lends a little bit extra to his character. Why would he take her clothes off after he killed her? Well, I think in the uh, visual iconography of the film as well, it's interesting that we never see her with clothes on and we never see the sex doll without its clothes on. That's interesting. That is weird. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of attention to detail in this film. The, the subtlety of the writing almost takes away from it. And I think, the, I think the writer's trying to say a hell of a lot more than comes across eventually on screen. There's even like, after Lane finishes that call to Feck, just, uh, I think he'd literally just been interrogated by the police. And he calls Feck, who's now just, he's passed out on his floor after getting his head yeah, it's it's just, just before the cops walk just in. Just before the cops him, get him. You're right. Yeah. And he comes out of the, the payphone, goes up back over to his car, and there's a sign above where his car's parked that says, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Yeah. I always wonder sometimes, like especially in low-budget films, it's like, is that a coincidence? Do they care? Is it just the location that they picked? Did they put the sign there deliberately? Um, was it there by accident? And they said, that's cool. Let's just keep that in the shot. 
Do you know what I mean? There's all these questions yeah, around. Well, it's either production design or it's a location scout happy accident going. I think this is this is the place. You know, right. the director going perfect. Let's use that. Yeah. But there's nothing religious in the entire movie. No, I think there's a distinct lack of spirituality. I'd even go so far as morality. Um, except that's not really true. It's delayed morality. Agreed. These kids clearly all have some sort of moral compass. It's just a little bit skew with. Yeah, there's a reaction. It's just dubious. Like, what is the reaction? It's not like it's a non-event for people. And the thing about the morality is there's no absolute morality in the film. There's no, you know, overriding, we all should do this. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I think that would really offend and hurt a lot of people, actually. I think a lot of people would watch this film and think it's an awful movie because of the real ambiguity around what should or shouldn't have happened. And I suspect that is why the distributors... There we go. ...at the yeah festival turned away from because they want their John Hughes ending. They want yeah, no. their clean black and white ending. Correct. Now, as a result of that, the film actually did surprisingly well with critics. Oh. Gene Siskel from Siskel and Ebert named it his seventh favourite film of 1987. Wow. Yeah. And many, many um, critics said at the time and in the years since... It's actually one of the most subversive horror films of the period. Mm. It's it's really a teen horror film in the guise of a teen drama. And I think that's a really interesting way of approaching it. Is it is interesting reading, yeah. Definitely in a very thickly veiled guise of teen drama that's hiding a lot of the horror elements, that's what I'll say. It's difficult to put it in the horror genre, though, because... I'm not scared of any killer. No, but see, again, I guess that's a question of tone and direction, isn't it? Because in the hands of someone like David Lynch or in the hands of someone like Toby Hooper, who was, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist, those kind of movies, you could take this script and just up oh, 100%. visual elements of it and you've got a horror movie. 100%. And even the way in the sort of the climactic event of Feck and Samson going down to the river and Matt and, is it Clarissa, only Sky's character, going into the park on the other side of the river and having sex. That's almost the setup of a Jason movie. Like, oh, the kids that have sex are now going to be the ones that get killed, uh, right? I see. I get I do that kind get of that. thing. Yeah. Anyway, here's my little treat for you, Alex. I don't know if you've, an- I don't know if you've anticipated this. No, I don't know. Strap in. I'm, I'm already, I'm always strapped in. Because it's time for It's Your Numbers. numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Budget. 1.9 million. Now, that's not peanuts, but that's clearly a very small budget yeah. movie, independent movie, uh, even for 1986, 1987. Worldwide gross. <laughs> 4.6 million. So that's a tidy profit on 1.9 million. Certainly didn't set the world on fire. Here's what's fascinating about that number, though. The widest release that this film got was three cinemas. What? And it ran for 34 weeks. That is a proper word-of-mouth hit. Made three times its budget back, and it ran for two-thirds of a year, basically. Now, films did stick around in cinemas more. Obviously, at that time, we had a longer uh, home video release, so films were in cinemas longer. But 34 weeks is crazy for a film this small. But that's insane, like, that they just kept showing it in those cinemas. Like, why wouldn't the studio go, like, let's release it in more cinemas? Across the well, nation. that's the question, isn't it? But I think it, it, it wasn't picked up by a major distributor. It was a, uh, they were called Island Pictures, so they could probably only get it in three theaters. Must have been quite um, a novel film for people to go see. And I think that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's why it was so well critically received by some people because it's the antidote to the John Hughes movie. I've just got two two more numbers for you, and this is this is 
really to, to question where you sit with it. Right. So the Rotten Tomatoes score, this sits at 86%. That's fresh as fuck. It's high. And the IMDb score is 7.0, which is also very high. So where, where does it rate for you? You can give it a score out of 5 or 10 or just say whether you like it. Well, we've been or... doing stars. When we were doing um, I Want to Stay Consistent. I'm happy with the star rating. Because we were doing star ratings on Forgotten Films. Let's just continue with that. It might make it easier to rank than trying to put it in a ranking then. It's not a five-star film. It's too much to say four stars. I imagine if I'd seen this film maybe when I was 15, 16, it might be a classic. I might really love it. But I didn't. And I think in the final analysis, I think it deserves three stars, no less, no more. Okay, yeah, it's three to three and a half for me. I, on an enjoyment level, it's a three. I think it's a better film, or I certainly enjoyed it more, than The Outsiders, which it has that kind of lawless punk teens right. running a town feel to it. It's not as good as At Close Range, which has a much more dramatic uh, script. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not necessarily attempting something as artful as this. But I do appreciate the attempt. I think the the writing is better than the direction. I think we both agree on that. Yeah. It also it reminded me a little bit of some of the early scenes of The Wraith. And I genuinely, at a certain point in this film, would have really liked a Terminator in a motorcycle helmet to come into this film and just waste everyone. <laughs> <laughs> then you'd get your horror film. So if this could have been a little bit more the wraith, I think I'd have been happy. I'm not going to go. As, I'm not going to go to three and a half. I will go three as well. I, I think I agree with you. Yeah, but that's still. It's not a bad. It's film. a recommendation. It's a recommendation with caveats. I think it is. Yeah, it's. You can watch this film and you can enjoy it. I wouldn't blame anybody for watching this and saying I fucking hate that film. But I, I, I think you're right. I think if you were a teenager when this film came out, it could possibly have been one of those films that you rewatched on VHS, Definitely. had the poster on the wall, all that kind of Definitely. stuff. Definitely. It was really the only line in the movie that stuck out to me because it made me laugh. Yeah. And it was a Keanu line. Yeah. Uh, saying to his stepdad, should I, I don't know, should I attempt a Keanu impression? Yeah, of I don't course. know. You have to. The only reason you stay here is so you can fuck my mother and eat her food. Motherfucker! Food eater! <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> food eater. That, what an insult. You're a food eater. It's, great. <laughs> it's earlier in the movie than that. And it's Jim, I think his name is. Stepdad. And he's upstairs. He's trying to sleep. And they're all arguing downstairs. He's saying, shut up. I'm trying to sleep. And she shouts upstairs and says, put your head up your ass if you want. Quiet. <laughs> Radical, we got a radical in there. I don't think we got any woes or bros, though, did we? No, it was quite thin on those kinds of things. But there's a lot of 80s language in there that's like, oh, you, yeah. don't, you don't hear that anymore. Sorry, just one last little bit about um, Keanu that I was going to share with yeah, you. Because yeah. uh, I, I, I like this. So the casting director for this movie said of Keanu's audition, he walked in the door and I went, oh my God, this is my guy. It was just because of the way he held his body. His shoes were untied and what he was wearing looked like a young person growing into being a man. I was over the moon about him. Uh, yeah, well, that says it all. And what she doesn't add is, and he was hot as balls. Yeah, she doesn't add that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bit of a problem with the next film for um, Keanu Reeves. He actually has four films out in 1988 and only two of them are available on DVD in this country. So I'm going to try and get my hands on The Night Before, which is the next one in the in the sequence. Yeah, okay. And then we'll have to see what we can do about Permanent Record and Prince of Pennsylvania. Okay. But we'll, we'll certainly do our best. Just before we sign off, yeah. uh, the last episode we did was our retrospective of the decade. 
And uh, Chris Beaver, who's been a pretty long time supporter of us, got in touch about it uh, and said, enjoyed this. Don't go overboard, Chris. Yeah. Some great choices and also makes me realize how many movies I've missed over the past decade. Some of my favorite movies I don't think you mentioned, which you may have missed or not liked. Nocturnal Animals. Did you see that? The Amy Adams movie? Nope. Don't know it. Very good. Worth a watch. Cool. Wind River, which is from the same writer as Sicario and Hell or High Water. It's got Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch in it. Really good. Scarlet Witch is miscast, though. Sing Street. Nope. Never heard of it. From the director of Once. I never got around to seeing it. Everyone raves about it. Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, we missed that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it was a good film. It's one of those films that I don't want to like because everyone says how amazing it is and that's a shit reason to try not to like something. Uh, Adventureland. Heard of it. Don't quite remember it. Zuckerberg and Twilight working in a... Zuckerberg and Twilight. (laughs) Working in a... What would you call it? A fun fair? Female Twilight or male Twilight? Female. Who I have time for, actually. Yeah, I like her. The Way Way Back, which I don't think I ever saw. I think that is a, a Steve Carell movie. Again, not heard of it. Okay. And Warrior, Tom Hardy. I'm surprised you missed that because you've been recommending that to me for yeah, I, ages. I, I do really like it, but um, it's not one of my favourites. All right. So there you go. That was a little bit from Chris Beaver. But then he also got back in touch and said, Yesterday... I realised I'd never listened to your True Lies episode and has made me want to get hold of it and have a rewatch. Yeah. I loved that you guys had high praise for the late, great Bill Paxton's performance and wondered if you've ever seen Frailty, which he directed and starred in. In my opinion, it's a sadly underappreciated masterpiece which needs to be rediscovered. Hope you release some new stuff soon. So, Chris, this one's for you, man. But we did talk about Frailty, I think, when, when Paxton died. Yeah. I don't, don't think you've seen it, have you? No, but I haven't. It was, but I, we said at the time, I'm sure, that it's it should be a bonus episode. Well, it was also something that we were considering for Forgotten Films. So yeah. if and when we go back to that, Frailty's on the list. Either that or a bonus episode. So that's that. Next film on our list is The Night Before. And we'll be back for that soon. Right. Until then, Alex. Whoa there. <laughs> this would be, I think, genuinely a good sign-off. Until next time. Be excellent to one another. That's what I said. Be excellent to each other, I said. To each other. All right, okay. Okay. Yeah, that is a good sign-off. So, who says it? Shall I say it? And then, shall I say sign-off? And you do the sign-off this season. Whatever you want. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's it, Ben. It's all wrapped up. Wrong. Until next time. Be excellent to each other. My tooth made a really weird whistle on excellent. Did you hear that? I didn't hear it, no. It's a little Matthew McConaughey. Do you want to do it again? Nah.